Hello and welcome to the Women's Center's Convo, a podcast and resource hub that shares helpful insight for survivors, community members, and service providers alike, formerly known as the Wednesday Workshop Podcast. Convo stands for Creating Opportunities for Nonviolent Outcomes, and we invite you to learn more about this initiative on Instagram at convo underscore TWC. The Women's Center is based out of Waukesha, Wisconsin. We welcome and serve survivors of all ages, races, gender identities, sexual orientations, abilities, nationalities, and immigration statuses. The mission of the Women's Center is to provide safety, shelter, and support to empower all impacted by domestic abuse, sexual violence, child abuse, and trafficking. Each episode will feature instruction on a healing topic. Today, in honor of Sexual Assault Awareness Month and with the support of our keynote speakers for our Empower Luncheon, taking place on April 26th, our topic is Knowledge Empowers. Before we get started, I want to first provide a brief content warning for discussions of rape culture, sexual violence, homicide, and systemic oppression. Please take care of yourself. It is more than okay to pause or stop listening to this episode if you need to. And please know that advocates are always available to process with you by calling our 24-hour hotline at 262-542-3828. A transcript of this podcast is also available in the podcast section of our website, www.twcwaukesha.org. Every Sexual Assault Awareness Month, the Women's Center works to leave you more educated, emboldened, and empowered to continue advocating for all survivors of sexual violence and trafficking year-round. Join us as we recognize Sam and call on each of you, individuals, communities, and businesses, to work together to dismantle the attitudes and beliefs that make up rape culture. What is rape culture, you might ask? It is the prevailing social attitude that has the effect of normalizing or trivializing sexual violence. In other words, it's the belief that the issues of rape and sexual assault are nothing to be concerned about, perhaps even expected due to beliefs of entitlement and power and control, and that survivors of sexual violence are ultimately responsible for their own victimizations, which we know is false. Rape culture, facilitated by other social norms such as racism, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia, just to name a few, can often allow sexual violence to occur in plain sight. Tate's views on power and control have been no secret. In fact, he's spoken at length about violence against women in interviews that have been reposted numerous times across social media, reaching over 11 billion views on TikTok alone including a boastful account of the very same trafficking operation that led to his arrest. Despite his very public arrest and open admissions of assault, no indictment has been made, and Tate still cultivates a massively large following of supporters. This is rape culture in action. How we talk and whether we decide to talk about sexual violence matters. And it's vitally important to call out these beliefs and behaviors whenever we witness them and create environments where rape culture is not tolerated nor welcomed. I got to spend some time speaking with Dr. Sarah McKinnon about how rhetoric shapes how survivors receive support on an interpersonal and systemic level. Dr. McKinnon is an associate professor in rhetoric, politics, and culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
Fun fact, she was the instructor of many of my undergraduate classes in the communication arts department at UW, and I credit so much of my knowledge on interpersonal relationships, healthy communication, and social justice that I've been able to share with you all on the podcast to her lessons. Quite the full circle moment. Dr. McKinnon has spent much of her career researching the language and rhetoric used around human trafficking and how it can be harmful to trafficking survivors and how it can prevent the systemic change necessary in order to protect victims moving forward. So uh, my first biggest question, and I'm asking both you and Dr. Lovell this, um, just what brought you into this body of research? Oh, that's a good question to start off with. So I would say that, so I was doing my master's and PhD work in Arizona at Arizona State University, and it was really hard to, it was basically impossible to live in a context, uh, the you know, state of Arizona as a context and not think about immigration and refugee issues. I mean, it was just something that was on the public sphere space all of the time and so I think really it was just about like where I was living in the context I mean it was such a charged political context at the moment so I began doing field work with a a group of Sudanese refugees so they had recently built um, this like community center for recently resettled refugees from Sudan and I was just like helping with like theater programs in like English classes and various things. And then also doing a little bit of like qualitative research. Um, And from there, I began to really start to see the gender disparities in in the way uh, immigration and refugee programs are distributed and allotted. And so that made me dig in a, a lot more to the question of gender, Um, as we think about refugee and immigration protections. And then from there, you know, that's been a really career defining uh, experience for me to really pay attention to that and to keep asking like, what's happening to gender? What are the the protections for women, uh, cisgender women, trans women? What are the protections for um, gay and lesbian individuals? um, And and what does that look like? So, So really thinking about how gender and sexuality play into Um, context of displacement. Right on. Yeah. And I know a lot of, well, a lot of what we talk about here at the Women's Center too, is how, just how we talk about survivors, how we talk about healing, how we talk about the issues of um, interpersonal violence, whether that's sexual violence, human trafficking, domestic violence, pretty much the intersection of how we talk about those things and how survivors get treated. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, on, um, you know, how we talk about these issues and therefore um, that gender disparity, how that impacts that gender disparity, how that impacts access to supportive resources? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I see, I think a lot about how we talk about survivorship, uh, experiences of intimate violence, um, sexual assault, in a legal context. And I think one of the things I would say is that the way in which these these ideas and experiences are framed very problematically in a legal context, then ripples out into the way that survivors are um, recognized or not recognized in various other realms of their life. 
So in the, the legal context of individuals who may be applying for asylum in the United States on the basis of a fear of persecution because of experiences of sexual assault, uh, experiences, you know, decades long experiences of intimate abuse. Uh, it's interesting to see the way the judges receive those cases. And you can, you, you, it's very quick to see that the similar myths play out. So women not being believed, um, articulating intimate abuse and sexual assault as personal violence, not private or not political violence. Um, notions of like faking it come into play, like all of these, these, I think about them as scripts, right? These social scripts mm -hmm. play out across all of these realms. And that, that makes it really challenging for, for survivors to go through a process of healing, but also have access to the resources that one might need to, to thrive and live well. And so I think that that's just like a constant um, battle and it's it's really it's really sad and and it makes me angry <laughs> to see this you know, play out across so many different spheres yeah and you know looking at it through that intersectional lens too so you know not only surviving some sort of in, uh, interpersonal violence but also you know perhaps being an immigrant or refugee, perhaps yeah. also being in the queer community, perhaps not being cisgender, you know, all of that. I mean, you know, we we think about all of these barriers to getting support and then just having all of those additional barriers stacked on top of each other absolutely makes it makes it extremely difficult to navigate supports. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in, in the legal context with the, the immigration cases that I look at, I find that those the, the more intersections that are added onto this, the, the more challenging the uh, case is for a judge to really see, you know, intelligibly. So uh, I think about the cases of, uh, of gay women who are coming to the United States because they, they fear, you know, a persecution on the basis of their, uh, their sexuality. And if the women have had kids earlier in their their lives or had male partners early in, or in their lives like these are elements of their story that complicate a judge's ability to to like receive that asylum seeker as as a lesbian um, or someone who identifies you know uh, as queer like they just can't see how those pieces come together and so especially in the asylum cases that comes to bear in really complicated ways mm. uh, and there's like you know, just this inability to see the complexities of life and how those complexities of life might come together. Mm -hmm. Right. And how much of, you know, a, a survivor's actual private life. So like you were saying with, you know, lesbian women seeking asylum who have children or have had male partners in the past, you know, that isn't relevant to their experience of assault or the experience of being a survivor yet right. not only in the legal lens but also just socially so many of those private details oftentimes come into play and yeah. um, can really impact um, how a survivor's story is received um, do you feel or rather do you have any ideas on ways we can you know dispel these myths or make it easier for survivors to access resources? Mm, that's a really good question. 
Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is being done. I mean, I, I see things happening in, uh, especially in social media. And I'm like, wow, that's really exciting. Like that, that, then that platform um, really has the potential to shift the conversation. So, um, so, but I mean, the, the, the base level, like, be, believe, like believe women, right? Like <laughs> probably like a base thing that we can do. Um, that's really significant. Like if someone is articulating a, a, an experience of harm, um, to take that seriously and to understand that the complexities of life are a, a part of that, a part of that story. You can't like separate them out. That's a part of the conversation. Uh, but then also, as I was just saying a, a minute ago, I do see really exciting things happening in uh, mediated worlds um, to to really give women space, give survivors in general space to um, shift the narrative and also take back their story. Um, so that is exciting to me. I mean, some of the the you know viral TikTok uh, videos that's really really exciting to see. Um, and so I think yeah, following those. I mean, it kind of sometimes can feel like. You're like chasing trends, but it it does potentially shift the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, yes, it can feel like chasing trends sometimes. It's it's really part of that larger yeah. conversation, that larger, you know, even like global political conversation too. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot in the in the news by way of social media just about different um equality movements, different oh, movements yeah. to believe survivors, to uplift women's rights, things like that. Yeah, I look, I pay close attention to what's happening in Latin America, just because that's where, you know, my research is situated, mm -hmm. in particular in Mexico. And I, when I watch the, the protests that are happening, like in the streets on behalf of uh, women and, uh, you know, really fighting gender-based violence in general, and when I see what's happening in like social media realms, I get really excited like that, those that dual fold addressing it through protest, probably trifold actually addressing it through policy and then addressing it in this more interpersonal space of one-to-one of -one contact, be that like face-to-face -face interactions or um, over social media that's how it happens, right? It's those those elements in different spheres coming together um, rather than like taking one angle and trying to address it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think too, like it's, it's just really important to be an engaged citizen, you know, keeping up That's with right. what's going on and, you know, at, at minimum, just kind of knowing what's going on around us, because, yeah. you know, even if it's not impacting us directly right now, it could later down the line, it could likely be impacting people we know and care about. And also just it impacts the world that we live in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something we talk about a lot here is, um, you know, in response to, let's say, high profile cases of sexual violence, domestic violence, things like that, um, where let's say, you know, celebrities are impacted, people yeah. who likely have no idea who we are personally, but, you know, depending on how we're commenting on that, how we're, um, you know, voicing our opinions on that, that person may not ever see that victim blaming comment, but survivors in our lives might um, yeah. and probably will. And that certainly impacts 
you know, the ability to receive support, to, to seek out support, to, you know, get out of what's going on for them. Absolutely. Because if you hear someone say something like that, you're like, oh, and you're a survivor, right? You all of a sudden in your mind, like, okay, that's not someone I can maybe go to and feel safe doing. So um, that's a really important point. Yeah. Something uh, it, it's all part of that, that awareness that we should all continue to strive for. I think. Yeah. Watching our words, watching right. how we act and be in the world. Uh, yeah. And you know, like we're all fallible human beings, right. But right. we can always strive to do the best and do better. Right. Definitely. So, you know, I know, of course, folks who are attending our Empower Luncheon will get to hear quite a bit more from you. Um, are there ways for listeners to continue to follow along with your research or continue to um, keep up with you in any way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, probably the best way is through the university website. I always have access there. Um, I am not very good at Twitter. I feel like that's probably something I should be better at, but I am not. But I've been doing a lot more on LinkedIn, actually. So I'm always happy to connect with folks there. And I try to really um, keep making sure that the conversation about immigration and asylum refugee issues is happening there. So I'm reposting a lot of really great material there about the current situation about that. And that always includes um, a gender and sexuality analysis. There's all, you know, that's always a part of the, the material that's that's there. So that's, pro that's probably the best um, point of connection for like research-based material. Thank you so much for your time. As we previously mentioned, how we talk about sexual violence and the presence of rape culture also impacts survivors on a systemic level and may hinder accountability for sexual offenders. Did you know that in 2017, Wisconsin had over 6,000 untested rape kits? And it was only in May of 2022 that a statewide tracking database went live for survivors to track the status of their kits. The issue of untested and backlogged rape kits has plagued our country and has left survivors feeling like justice has not been possible for them. This is a symptom of a culture that does not care about survivors and something that needs to change, something that can change. I spoke with Dr. Lovell about her work in one of the first sexual assault kit initiatives, or SAKIs, in the United States, and how she helped transform how sexual assault kits, as well as how survivors, are treated in the criminal justice system. Dr. Rachel Lovell is an assistant professor of criminology and director of the Criminology Research Center at Cleveland State University. She is a leading expert on the issue of untested rape kits and what the real life consequences are for survivors and our communities when backlogs occur. My first question for you is what brought you into researching untested sexual assault kits? So I was asked to, um, so uh, the to start Cleveland um, and Cuyahoga County, which is the county seat of Cleveland, um, had begun early on because of, uh, of a terrible case where um, uh, a man had murdered um, a, a 11 women um, and found their bodies in and around his house. There was um, 
uh, increased pressure to address sexual assault kits because two of his victims were able actually to escape and got sexual assault kits collected and reported to the Cleveland Police Department and um, uh, they weren't followed up on and the kits weren't tested. So there was early, uh, you know, Cleveland was one of the earlier doctor jurisdictions of addressing backlog kits um, around the same time as Detroit. So I started, um, so the task force has started to address this, to test the kits, to inventory them, to follow up with investigations and prosecutions. And then um, the, the then county prosecutor um, who was, his office was leading this task force, um, reached out to um, where I where I was employed before um, at Case Western Reserve University to be their research partner. And so I think they recognized very early that they, they were really a little bit in over their head in the, the sheer amount of data collection and the requests that they were getting. And it was a very complicated type of thing that is not typical for prosecutors to kind of be, you know, analyzing and collecting data. But I think more than that, they were very interested in having sort of lessons learned because they were really shocked at some of the things that they were they were getting back from information on this. And they had no blueprint or model in terms of how best to do this. There weren't really many other cities doing it. It was a massive undertaking. And so they reached out for research help to be able to really say, are we doing this right? What should we be learning? What should we be doing differently? Um, we did a cost benefit analysis. And so that's how I began, um, and it was a pilot project funded from the pro the prosecutor's office. Um, it had that was before the federal initiative existed around the sexual assault kit initiative, but soon after I started working with the prosecutor's office, the federal initiative came into being, which created opportunities for us to continue to collaborate with them and you know be able to fund much of the research that um, I'll be talking about in the. Um, in, uh, at the luncheon, as well as um, stuff that's covered in the publications and in a book on the Sexual Assault Kid Initiative, where I'm the lead editor. And from that initiative getting off of the ground, and I, I suppose this could even be, you know, a larger commentary on the on the federal initiative of um, the, the federal Sexual Assault Kid Initiative, um, what impacts have you seen from these initiatives getting off the ground for survivors? I, I, you know, researchers aren't really prone to hyperbole um, very often. Uh, we don't do creative writing or probably even think creatively, but I think um, the, it is not hyperbole to say that the initiative has drastically transformed the way in which many systems, but certainly has drastically transformed the way that sexual assault kits are, are treated within the system now. Almost all states have mandated testing and inventorying and other types of things. So at the state level, legislatively, massive transformation, transformative change. In a smaller circles and sort of more locally, those that are SACI sites, um, I think are are really starting to transform the way that they treat sexual assault in general, right? So this is really a once in a lifetime opportunity. Never have we been able to, you know, take decades worth of sexual assaults and give them a second look um, to sort of say, what are we learning from this? What didn't we do right to begin with? How can we better support survivors? 
What is it that we're learning now that we couldn't have known back then? Um, a lot of those things have to do with um, the perpetrators themselves. We have a very limited understanding of sexual perpetration, and that's often because we only have two viewpoints. We only have, we have, you know, prevalence estimates. So many of the survivors saying, I, you know, I am a survivor saying, you know, uh, responding that this had happened to them, but not necessarily being connected to the person who, who did that to them. And since so few rapes are reported and, and even the reported rapes rarely lead to adjudication or conviction. So what we know about the offenders is so limited because it's only those that reported and that were convicted and went to jail, right? Like we know so little about those and the kids provide the opportunity to really understand um, the, the, their behavior, but more importantly, how we can better support survivors in that and really transforming the victim blaming narrative to one of exploitation. And here's this individual who exploited an opportunity that presented you know, that, that he, that he or she situated themselves to, to exploit or um, seized an opportunity that, that was there. Um, but really it's about exploiting, uh, you know, exploiting victims, exploiting those vulnerabilities as compared to what role did the victim play in that, which is the traditional way that we have treated the criminal justice system. Um, and, and so you see the, this, transformative change. And I think what it's really showing is that so many of the reports are closed and, and fall on the, on the burden of everything falls onto victims, right? Soon after they've been victimized, which is very difficult, you know, process. And, 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 you know, they're really sort of just weighing the value and worth. And I, you can't see me, but I'm putting that in, you know, quotes, of a case based upon, you know, what someone is able to articulate right after they've experienced one of the worst traumas they possibly could. And now we have all this information on, on perpetration and we're saying, guess what? These are violent offenders who commit lots of offenses, a lot of sexual, a lot more sexual, uh, serial sexual offending than we thought. And so it really, it's, it's, um, it really, you know, sort of takes, some of the, it takes a lot of the responsibility off of survivors. Um, and really, instead of saying, why aren't we putting this weight or, and burden onto the, onto the perpetrator here? And, you know, and so the kids provide that evidence and that ability. And I will say, um, there is some misconception that kids are only when it's only for when you need to identify a stranger. <clears throat> so some people think, well, I know who sexually assaulted me, so I don't need to go get a kit. Um, and, um, and the reason, and that's, that's not the case because, um, often there needs to be medical attention to the survivor, both in terms of STDs and pregnancies, um, but also support and services and, and services like the Women's Center provides. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of supportive work that can be done from that, but in terms of evidence, um, some we hear, for example, from uh, uh, non-binary individuals uh, or men who have been sexually assaulted will say, well, kits are only really for semen and only for female bodied individuals. But that's also not true because they can collect lots of corroborating evidence from 
the kit that helps support the, you know, the statement from the survivor that can help lead to um, a conviction um, or at least a prosecution. So um, there's many reasons why individuals would want to. And I think we're learning how we've failed victims and supporting them, um, but also how we can do a much better job. And it's giving us that opportunity to revisit the past and say, let's do a better job for current victims and for future victims as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's, well, several amazing points there. One to the point of what, um, what a sexual assault kit can and cannot collect. Absolutely. Um, you know, as part of my advocacy role, um, I accompany survivors to um, hospitals across Waukesha County. And, you know, there there's a lot of discourse around what constitutes sexual assault and what doesn't, um, and a lot of victim blaming right associated with that. And so I think talking about this more about what a sexual assault kit is, um, what it can do, what it can't do, and that people are caring about it, that eyes are on this issue, I think that can be really helpful too in, in continuing to raise awareness. Um, from your point of view, are there any other things that you feel um, community members, so just your local everyday folks can do to help raise awareness of this issue of the sexual assault kit initiatives? Yeah, I, I mean, I think in the bigger picture is that um, Often in organizations like yours, there is a committed group of individuals who um, sort of, what's the right word, maybe go to the mass. Like they are, you know, like they have the voice they of, of you know, and they have the ear of policymakers and being able to, you know, um, to write in for, um, you know, uh, write into newspapers for, for letters to the editor, be able to contact their representatives. Um, and so Wisconsin, uh, you know, has implemented almost all of the, so the Joyful Heart Foundation, who's the main advocacy organization nationally around rape kit reform, has what's called six pillars uh, of rape kit reform. Wisconsin has implemented five of the six. And so that's a wonderful step in the right direction legislatively, but, but what we're finding here in Ohio and elsewhere is that those legislative, um, the, those legislative statutes are only important in under which people hold the individuals accountable for doing it. So while law enforcement, for example, is required to submit that in most jurisdictions, there's no teeth to a law if they are not doing it, which requires constant public engagement. And in particular for those who advocate on behalf of survivors, because we shouldn't be asking survivors to advocate for themselves. <clears throat> to ensure accountability is built into that system as well as monitoring. So, so while we have at the state, while Wisconsin has at the state level, these laws, these are only laws on the books. You actually have to implement them um, and to ensure that different jurisdictions are doing this. One thing that we have learned is that for some of the smaller jurisdictions or the jurisdictions that are not perhaps the sexual assault kit initiative, like, the ones who, you know, are sort of, um, we're called them sites, state sites or whatever, that just by testing the kit will not, will not implement change because testing is, is one step 
and a very important step, but it's one in a series of investigative activities that should be occurring. And that evidence should be used to be able to, you know, sort of as a lead in, in investigation and prosecution. And victims should have a, you know, ability to know what is going on with their kit in a tracking system, which Wisconsin has just started. That we need to sort of monitor and make sure that we're that these laws are being followed into which they should be, and that that kit doesn't just become like a lab report that goes in a file in, in somebody's desk, right? Like that information should be used, um, and and practices should be changed accordingly. And um, what we're trying to work more around is getting law enforcement agencies, prosecutor's office, victim advocates, um, you know, policymakers, all kinds of individuals at, at the table at the same time, making sure that through case reviews and other sorts of things that there's great, you know, that, um, that everyone who, you know, everyone's at the table, multidisciplinary team is ensuring um, that these, you know, that there's accountability and monitoring in the system. So for example, in the book that I talked about that we wrote, there's a chapter from um, someone who's working at Washington, at Washington State, and they worked actually to implement mandated case reviews into the legislation. So Police departments are mandated, certain ones, and there's some rules there, but are mandated to have a case review by external entities like um, like victim advocates and other sorts of individuals take a, a sample of the cases, they review them, they're making sure that they're following up on things, that things aren't, you know, that they're using evidence from that. Like that's the sort of accountability that advocates can play a, a very big role in. Um, and so you can certainly work to sort of help change legislation and continue to improve it. But I think the book talks about this, but also, you know, that Saki work really emphasizes that we all have a role in ensuring better, better support for survivors. So I hope everyone sort of walks away with at least some basic understanding and training of how to give a, a trauma-informed response to disclosure, for example that people have good under, you know, that the that every individual knows this sort of general process under which if somebody, you know, what happens if somebody is sexually assaulted, where do they go? What do they do? You know, uh, who do they contact? Who should they reach out to? Where should they get help? Um, and not, not just for those that they think, oh, well, I may be raped at some point, but the every individual should really be able to have more information about how to, to go about that and what are their rights and um, rights in the system and sort of working with advocates um, plays that vital role in ensuring that rights are protected, the information is passed on it, that they have the support that they need. The criminal justice system can be very difficult for a, a survivor. It's not at all structured or meant to support a survivor. That's not the goal of the criminal justice system. So survivors are often left um, uh, you know, left hanging without the support of advocates. Um, so I think that that's another big thing that we're learning is that advocates have to be at the table. They have to be centered within the process. Um, and they, somebody needs to look after the welfare and the rights of the survivor throughout the entire process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, 
everyday community members, like you were saying, um, you know, this information isn't for, isn't necessarily for, you know, in case one day you everyday community member may get sexually assaulted. It's just the fact mm -hmm. that this is a community issue. It always is. And statistically, again, without going into hyperbole, but, you know, very generally speaking, pretty much everybody knows somebody who has experienced sexual violence in some way, whether they go through the reporting process or not, or if it's, you know, mm -hmm. just disclosing to a friend that, hey, this has happened to me. It's very rare to find somebody who does not know anybody who has experienced this. So it's always important to to have that bit of awareness, to have that that trauma-informed approach when just talking to everyday people, because you can know a survivor and not even necessarily know that they're a survivor too. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say like in the field, um, you know, in human trafficking as well, which I work in, um, as well as others, you know, or just if you sort of just think in general, when there, you get the things of like, warning signs, warning signs, you might have high blood pressure, warning signs of, you know, a, a, you know, awareness around human trafficking and, uh, you know, whatever, we get this information about this sort of warning signs or risk of, or, you know, how to spot certain things. Um, and like you said, sexual violence um, has certainly impacted almost every single person either directly or indirectly through someone they know or love. I have yet to meet an individual who doesn't know somebody who's been touched by sexual violence, if not for themselves. Um, and so I teach, for example, an undergrad victimology course. And while it's a general victimology course, I spend at least one or two sessions and I have them, you know, I give them, and I'm not a psychologist, but I give them all the sort of training of this is exactly what a trauma was, you know, a trauma informed response to disclosure looks like. This is why you have to do it. Go through the basics of the neurobiology of trauma. And a lot of individuals who may even not be sexually victims of sexual violence, but they may also be traumatized in other sorts of ways. This information is also useful for them. And then I also give them this whole rundown of like, okay, let's say, you know, someone who is, or you yourself is, you know, is a victim of sexual assault, what happens next? Um, and I walk them through the whole process. Like, what are their rights? Where do they go? What do they do? Who do they talk to? You know, who, the, who should be the first call? Who should be the second call? And those sorts of things. And usually I tell them, you know, a victim advocacy organization should be Neat, up at the top of one of their calls because those individuals can provide the support but we really need to to do a much better job of supporting survivors and I think the saddest part of my job is reading all the reports where you know the cases went nowhere and the survivors were likely not believed and they never got the support that, you know, and I hate to think about what, you know, uh, what that individual had to go through and the amount of systemic victimization that they experienced, not only the personal victimization, you know, the actual rape itself, but everything that came after that. And so if we can provide that, you know, change that process for, for future or current victims, um, that's where we need to to focus our energy on and having individuals like yourself who work in hospital advocacy 
Um, I've done interviews with survivors and asked them about that process. And they will tell me, you know, like, I don't remember anything what was told to me. I don't remember the discharge notes or, you know, any of those things. All I remember is somebody held my hand and somebody, you know, cared. And that's what sticks with them. Like somebody was there, someone was kind and that's what they needed in that moment. And so really being able to do everything we can to allow, you know, advocates and fund this sort of work is, is really where um, it, it should begin for survivors. Right on. And thank you so much for, for lending your voice to this issue and to this conversation today. Is there a way that listeners can continue to follow along with your work and your research? Yeah. So I would say, um, since we've been doing this for a while and we were one of the first jurisdictions and federal money was available, I have really the privilege to be able to continue to do this work. Um, uh, we did recently write the first book on the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. Um, it's an edited book, meaning lots of people contributed chapters from their own. Um, there's, you know, it takes a village here. And so many, many different fields wrote chapters about how to improve this process and where we came from, where we, what we're doing now and where we should be going and why the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative kind of propelled that and what we're learning about that. But I would also, um, and so it's certainly in the book, um, it's called Sexual Assault Kits and Reforming the Response to Rape. Um, you can get it on Amazon um, or anywhere, I guess. Um, but also I would say that, you know, I'm not the only person that's doing this work, that there's some really great work. The Joyful Heart Foundation is a really great resource to find out more about what's going on in your state and to connect you to legislators. Um, as well as um, you know, sort of local rape crisis centers and other ones, especially in larger jurisdictions like the Women's Center would would be able to do that. But in terms, um, there's also um, a website um, for all of the sexual assault kid initiative sites, which I think there's now 76 jurisdictions. So, um, which covers I think two thirds of the United States population is under some or has been under some sort of um, sexual assault kid initiative jurisdiction, which is really, it's really transformative. Um, so there is a website. It's called um, SACI, S-A-K-I-T-T-A dot org. And it will have lots of information and resources from the every single entity that's involved in this, from nurses to forensic scientists, to prosecutors, to law enforcement, to researchers. And it's, you know, sort of curated all of those all of the research, as well as all the other practical guides for individuals to be able to do that. So if anyone is interested in learning more about where to get started with that or where their state fits within that, um, sacytta.org would be able to, to direct you there. Thank you so much for your time to share your work with our community. If you would like to learn more about Wisconsin's Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, you can go to www w-i-s-a-k-i dot d-o-j dot w-i dot gov. I know that was a bit of a mouthful, so there is also a list containing all of the links and resources mentioned today on our website. 
Stay tuned to our website as well for future episodes, and feel free to take a look at our past episodes too for additional healing and educational topics. The Women's Center focuses our work in partnering with clients to overcome barriers and to gain a life free from violence. Our work is grounded in equity upheld by inclusion, accountability, self-reflection, and continual growth. We believe that it's important for survivors to feel seen and heard. We believe that Black Lives Matter because we cannot end violence without addressing the distinct injustices that Black and Indigenous people of color face. We know that all forms of oppression are ultimately connected, and when we center individuals most impacted, we're also supporting survivors who have faced any form of violence. While we're not experts in anti-racism work, we aspire to be allies in this movement. We all have a responsibility to contribute to unlearning racism in intersecting forms of oppression that take place in our communities. If you would like to talk with an advocate about your own experience with abuse, please call our 24-hour hotline at 262-542-3828. Learn more about the Women's Center at www.twcwaukesha.org and find the resources mentioned on this episode by clicking resources, then podcasts on our website. If you're in the greater Milwaukee area, we also host an in-person Wednesday workshop on the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month. That is by pre-registration only, so please call the hotline and ask to speak with me, the advocacy specialist, for more information. Thank you so much for listening, and be well.